Welcome to Statewide Reports and Conversations from in and around Illinois. I'm Sean Crawford. This hour, we hear a lot about school shootings, but Chicago actually has seen a rise in such violence in the hours after classes let out in nearer the school buildings. We'll talk more about it. Federal dollars have helped more schools invest in mental health services, but a lot of that money may be going away. Governor J.B. Pritzker laid out his budget plan for the next year. What is he proposing and what's been the reaction? There's also a lot of talk about inflation these days and a possible recession. A business expert from Illinois joins us to give his views on what might lie ahead. We'll meet the first director of tribal relations for the Illinois State Museum. And while many people like to camp and sleep outside, we'll hear about a teen who has made it a regular occurrence, sleeping outside for more than 1,000 straight nights. Those stories and more this hour on Statewide. You're listening to Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. One year ago, 15-year-old Michael Brown was shot and killed about two blocks outside his high school on Chicago's south side. The killing of a young teen after school on a weekday is rare, but last year that number spiked in the city. Some people are turning up the heat on Chicago public schools to do more to improve safety. Officials say they're working on a plan. Let's first hear from 16-year-old A.J. Davis, one of Michael Brown's friends. A.J. called him Little Mike. I was with him before it happened. We was all at the store, me, him, and my friends. So basically, we all went separate ways to go home. My friend, J-Rock, he texted the group. He was like, y'all got to check on Lil Mike. He not texting nobody because that's what we call him, Lil Mike. And then I got home, and then my friend had called me. He crying, he crying, he crying. I'm like, what happened, what happened? He, yeah, they said that it was Lil Mike that got shot. I don't know. It almost felt like it was like out of color like it was drained like the the two months after that it was like just stuck on sadness you know we can't be kids no more he was still a kid you know what i'm saying he was still a kid he still had life he still had talents he still had dreams and people just try to ignore that when they see a black kid in chicago get killed because it's just normal you know it's normalized but then again they not a black kid living in chicago you feel me it's normalized but it shouldn't like, it shouldn't be no reason I got to constantly watch my back. Even even if I'm taking the garbage that I watch my back, I'm watching my surroundings. And I ain't did nothing to hurt nobody. But then again, it's a bunch of kids that done lost their life that ain't did nothing to hurt nobody. Like, still to this day, it's shaking me like, man, like, are you, are you serious? Like, he can't come home from school? He couldn't get home, like, from school? And this is supposed to be a safe place for us. This is supposed to be a safe haven where we come to school, we see our friends, you know what I'm saying? We see the staff that we like, you know, we kick it with them. But you telling me we can't even do that in peace? That's 16-year-old A.J. Davis. Mary Dixon spoke with WBEZ reporter Sarah Karp and the Chicago Sun-Times' Nader Issa about the story. Sarah, that was pretty hard to hear. Can you give us some context on this? So I want to say that it, it's actually pretty rare for teenagers to be shot and especially killed as they leave school, even in Chicago with all its gun violence. The young man we just heard was talking about his friend, Michael Brown, who was killed a year ago last week. You might remember that on December 16th, there was a shooting outside of Benita Juarez High School where two kids were killed. Once these things started piling up, that's why we wanted to sort of look at this issue and wanted to see like what, what was going on here. And last year, what we found was that it was an anomaly with nine children 17 years or younger killed on a weekday in the hours that students had home. This is more than any other 
year in the past decade. The average before that was three. And we chose to look at the the kids, you know, 17 and younger because that's the compulsory age of attendance for school. Nader, what are Chicago Public Schools officials saying about this? They've certainly noticed the spike in violence. They're worried about it. They're trying to find solutions. They're also partly tying it to the overall violence in Chicago and around the country. Something they're considering and and looking at in talks with the Chicago Police Department is more roving police units outside of schools. So that would mean police cars, patrol cars around the neighborhoods, around the streets surrounding school buildings. That would be a big decision. You might remember a year ago, uh, the the past couple years, there's been a lot of protests. There's been talks about removing officers from high schools and how kids feel about officers inside their schools. And we talked to the head of safety and security at CPS. Her name is Jadine Chow. And here's what she had to say explaining that decision. They see the police presence outside in a different way from police like in the school eight hours a day, five days a week. But if it's out on the street, they understand that there might be safety risks outside. And so it doesn't feel as imposing. So officials are trying to find a way to respond. They've also learned from the lessons of the past couple of years, and they want to take students and individual schools and their needs into consideration. And Nader, how are these individual schools reacting to this? The first step after something happens is to address the trauma. They obviously know it's hard to lose a student, to lose a classmate, a friend. And so they come together to address that, bring in counselors, social workers, and build that sense of community. We also talked to Charles Anderson. He's the principal at Michelle Clark High School on the west side. They've had two kids killed in the past year uh, in the after-hour schools, one very close to school, another one farther away but walking home from school. And Anderson told his kids just want these relationships with adults in the building. They want to have at least one trusted adult to confide in. That can help both prevent incidents because they, they have an adult to speak about concerns with, and it can be a way to respond and, and let their feelings known. And Sarah, you've been talking with parents and teachers and students who are affected by violence. Do they think that CPS and police are doing enough? So there are definitely people who would like to see the school district do more. The Chicago Teachers Union is really upset about this, and they want to see clear steps laid out for what they should do on the day of a shooting and the next day so teachers and students feel supported. And then just last week, the mothers of some of the victims of the war shooting held a press conference demanding more communication and more support from the school district especially, they said, for the sister of one of the victims who still goes to the school. And what about A.J. Davis, the young man, 16 years old, that we heard from at the beginning of this piece? So A.J. said that some of the teachers and staff at his school were really great, and there are some that he still really confides in. But he also said that there were some teachers who just went on as normal right after the shooting and didn't really acknowledge it. And that made him feel as though those teachers didn't care about his friend, And he also wondered if that's how they would feel if he was the victim. Sarah Karp from WBEZ and Nader Issa from the Chicago Sun-Times talking about a spike in violence outside Chicago public schools. Thanks, guys. This week marked 15 years since five Northern Illinois University students were shot and killed. It happened in a classroom in Cole Hall at the DeKalb campus. 
Peter Medlin has more from the memorial that honored those students. The bell rang five times at 3.06 p.m. Five times to remember the five students killed in a mass shooting at NIU on Valentine's Day 2008. Gail Dubowski, Catalina Garcia, Juliana Gahant, Ryan Mace, and Daniel Parmenter. Family and friends stood out in the rain to grieve and embrace at the Memorial Garden. 17 others were injured that day. Mike Speak was a student in that classroom where the attack happened. It's a feeling that I don't wish it upon anyone. It's torn, it's torn me apart. I miss them all the time and I didn't even know them. Along with the memorial outside of Cole Hall, the university has also established the Forward Together Forward scholarship in their names. I'm Peter Medlin. We're seeing claims a recession won't be that deep or prolonged, but there have also been large preemptive layoffs by big companies, and that suggests they're hunkering down for something more severe. Retail sales are down, so are investments, and a debt crisis is brewing. Charlie Schlinker talked with the Illinois State University Business College Dean, A.J. Samant, who says even with all the data, it's unclear how deep the trough will be. How deep will it be that is still up in the air? The CEO of Bank of America said recently he is predicting it to be mild, down for a couple of quarters, and then back to slightly up, and then more normal in 24 and 25. He bases that on current healthy consumer spending among high earners, as opposed to lower spending overall, in spite of inflation, and continued relatively low unemployment. Are those the key indicators to look at to determine severity? Those are some of the indicators. There are others which are near impossible to predict at this point in time. Those in lower income brackets are going to find that an increasing part of their expenditure, their discretionary expenditure, is all on food and on uh, you know, other items which are necessities. The House of Representatives and the debt ceiling agreements, all that is going to impact expenditure patterns of people. Well, let's talk about the debt limit. The steady on supporters of the government are fighting with those who want deep cuts in the annual federal budget. The federal government, as you mentioned, is a significant part of the economy. If the budget cutters get what they want over a decade, how will the decline in government spending affect the economy over that period? It would have some beneficial effects and perhaps some detrimental effects. Some of the beneficiary effects are that with decline in government spending, there is less need for the government to borrow more money, which lowers the national debt. It also has a downward effect on interest rates in the economy. On the negative side, a decline in government spending often impacts the most vulnerable sections of society, those who are the recipients of the bulk of government spending. It, it impacts their ability to move forward. And I'm talking about making progress on you know, social and economic fronts. The impact of government spending is, I'd call it uh, asymmetric. It will most impact what I would call the underrepresented sections of society. For instance, African-Americans have about a 6% unemployment rate, which is a little less than twice mm -hmm. what the overall average unemployment rate is. If you've got lower government spending at a time when the underserved most need it, and the underserved are disproportionately affected by both inflation and recessionary layoffs, that's kind of a triple whammy for them. Yes, it is. And the, the recession will have the worst impact on the most underserved sections of society. It is they who will feel the brunt of the layoffs. 
it is they who will feel the brunt of the of the uh, decline in government expenditure and it is their services that would be impacted the most what does that do to spin-off effects like child poverty crime rates and 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 uh, educational attainment unfortunately it does not bode very well for any of these three that will continue to be an uphill struggle for those who are you know trapped at those levels of poverty how do you think the fed is going to calibrate the balance of pain to unemployed people with the goal of reducing inflation where do they stop the interest rate hikes this is a challenging question if the fed knew the answer exactly they would know exactly when to stop nobody really knows the answer to these questions if they stop too soon we run the risk of prolonged inflation which does not do anybody any good and certainly does not bode well for the uh, economic growth of the country on the other hand if they persist in interest rate hikes at a time when the economy is not doing well they run the risk of uh, making the recession even deeper my guess is that they would start to decrease the interest rate hikes at least the magnitude of the hikes but the hikes would continue for some time and it would continue to impact those sectors of the economy that are most dependent on borrowing particularly the housing market and possibly the market for uh, both new and used cars we're talking with aj samant the dean of the college of business at isu the current fed wisdom is that they're shooting for 2% inflation is that realistic in this particular climate where we've been up to 11% employment historically it's a little higher than 2% on average what's real 2% is you know in a sense the ideal rate of inflation now the actual inflation last year was 9% uh it's expected to have come down to between 6 and 7% at this point in time which is a significant reduction could it be brought down to as much as 2% within a year well that is a little ambitious and if that does happen it would require a significant downturn in economic activity which is a recession really yes it can be done but it may take a little more time i don't know if it can be accomplished in a year it probably it may, it may take longer than that given the economic pain that the fed would be inflicting does that continue to be a good goal in the long term yes it is a good goal it is good for the for the economic growth of the economy over many many years in the short term there will be pain yeah i think it is a goal that is worthy of pursuit there have been a lot of layoffs in the tech sector uh, 150,000 last year even before we formally have hit recession now this year amazon microsoft google meta all biting yeah. off big chunks of workers and putting them on the streets what's the impact on the rest of us to layoffs in the tech sector in particular let's first understand why it is the tech sector that is laying off people during the covid pandemic it was the tech sector that really stepped up its hiring because of the push uh, for uh, remote work and online services the tech sector cannot continue to expand at that rate there was probably some overhiring in the tech sector and they are now beginning to realize that they've taken on more people than they should have the pandemic is over and the need for those kinds of online services doesn't exist or is declining low interest rates fueled a lot of tech startups are we going to see that part of the economy the startups disproportionately slow now companies will not lay off people unless they expect a decline in sales and that is what tech companies are anticipating 
that their services will not sell the way they used to. There are more small businesses than there are big ones, and they borrow money too. If the cost of borrowing is remains elevated, what happens there? It's very hard to generalize as to what the impact would be across different kinds of small businesses. We expect that small businesses which are in the area of you know, restaurants and, and so on, they would continue to do well. There may be other small businesses that are impacted. So I don't expect the effect of a rise in interest rates would be even across different small businesses. It will not. What other things have we yet to consider as we head into this potential recessionary period? What we have to consider is that COVID has transformed the economy in very long-lasting ways. Just a couple of uh, ways that come to my mind. A greater percentage of the workforce will now be remote, and that is a long-term consequence of COVID. And second, those who have access to technology will have a big advantage over those who do not, which once again brings up the question of income equality and opportunity equality. That may get worse because technology is going to amplify or widen the gap between those who have access to it and those who do not. Illinois State University Business College Dean A.J. Samant, he spoke with Charlie Schlinker. Just ahead on statewide, the need for child care in rural areas. And we're back on statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. 37% of high school students in the U.S. report regular mental struggles. Pandemic-era federal funding has allowed schools to invest in mental health support. Peter Medlin has more on what that looks like. Students in the Lamoille School District don't have a full-time school social worker or psychologist. For tiny rural districts like it, which only has 170 students, that's not unusual. Rural schools are much less likely to offer mental health services than urban and suburban schools. Katie Shavokas is a part-time school counselor at Lamoille High School, and she says they really need a social worker. We have had such a significant increase for our mental health needs amongst our high school students. Well, not just our high school students, all students in general. The only kids that get services are the ones with IEPs. Now, that's going to change. Shavokas recently helped Lamoille, along with a consortium of six other rural districts, win a $6.8 million federal grant to bring more mental health support to their students. Shavoka says it was her first time ever writing a federal grant, but she thinks teaming up with other small schools in desperate need of those services helped them stand out. Also, it is that we're a rural area and the statistics were astounding as far as that our kids are really in jeopardy for depression, anxiety, substance abuse. The school-based mental health services grant through the U.S. Department of Education will help all seven rural Illinois districts hire and retain mental health staff and increase the number of providers serving students. That includes five social workers, a counselor, a behavior interventionist, a school psychologist, and screeners. It also funds professional development opportunities, social-emotional curriculum, and parent outreach. There's also a licensed mental health professional who will split their time between five schools. Justin Lamoille, they're getting their social worker along with two extra mental health professionals one day a week. And on top of that, they'll be able to retain the social work services they already provided to special education students. 
Retention is a crucial part of that equation. Denise Anbau is the principal at Mendota High School, another rural district which is part of the grant. She says federal emergency relief funding called ASSER has helped them add more mental health support staff over the past few years of the pandemic. They've been able to bring in outside counselors to give students one-on-one counseling at school. Because it's, it's really hard for our parents to drive kids to Princeton, LaSalle, Ottawa, wherever they need to go for these sessions. It's, it's, it's a burden. It's really hard for them. Mendota partnered with their local regional office of education to train in mental health first aid and how to identify students who need support. They expanded health curricula and brought in mental health professionals to present to the whole school. But ESSER is one-time funding that will expire, and it makes hiring staff more complicated when you don't know how long you'll be able to keep paying for them, especially at rural schools that have a hard time staffing these positions even when they have the money. But Anbaugh says the five-year grant allows them to continue those mental health services that they started through ESSER. That's such a benefit, especially to our rural schools, where we have such a struggle having access to these you know, mental health supports. The DeKalb Public School District is not part of that federal grant program, but ESSER funding has allowed them to significantly increase the number of mental health professionals on staff. Before COVID, the district had 35 mental health professionals, including counselors, social workers, and psychologists. And since 2020, they've added nine more, seven of which are funded through ESSER. DeKalb Director of Student Services Kyle Gertis says it was a massive opportunity. We really wanted to bolster our early intervention, early childhood up through that fifth grade, that elementary age, to ensure that we're always have staff that are available to respond to students that have what we would consider more crisis needs. But that doesn't pull away from our ability to provide preventative support or to push into classrooms and provide social-emotional learning lessons that all students get. And he says the district is in a financial place to keep those positions even after ESSER expires. But not every school can keep up the mental health support that they put in place during the pandemic. There are other efforts like allowing students five mental health days off. But Gerda says you can have all the programs you want, but it won't matter much if you don't have trained people in those roles to help kids. And he says they have to because the mental health struggles so many of their kids experience aren't going away anytime soon. I'm Peter Medlin. The Illinois State Museum last year hired its first director of tribal relations. Heather Miller's job is to build relationships between native tribes and the state of Illinois. Miller is also an enrolled citizen of the Wyandotte Nation and is working to revitalize the tribe's language. In the fall, she spoke with Tim Shelley about her role with the State Museum. We revisit that conversation today. I think it's a great time right now at the at the museum because they are experiencing new things and trying new policies and trying new procedures. So it's great that I get to be here and to help support and to figure out the ways to make that work for everybody. You know, understanding that there are a variety of situations and a variety of different needs while also being respectful to the 32, you know, tribal nations that have a say and a claim to Illinois is really important. And so I'm hoping that I can find the right way to support all of those initiatives and ideas and uh, different folks, you know, through this work. And those 32 tribal nations, how do you work with them to do better incorporate their stories into what the Illinois State Museum is, is telling? doing? 
yeah, there's so many exciting ways that we're going to be working with those tribal nations. So the first uh, important step that we get to take is, as the museum, we've come to this place where we've reviewed our collections and we're looking at the rules required of us as an institution. Um, and I'm talking about specifically the federal rules around the Native American Graves and Repatriation Act. And what that means is that for things that we have in collections like um, the bodies of some of our ancestors, some of our relatives, some of those really special objects that they were buried with, you know, we've got those in collections. Well, we need to make sure that we're doing right by those tribes that can claim them and have a say in how they need to be treated. So my first goal about this is to work with those tribes and make sure that we're honoring their NAGPRA requests, making sure that we're doing right by those collections. So if they're asking for those objects to re be returned to them, then my job is to help make sure that we return those items. If they're asking them to be you know, reburied in in the ground here in Illinois out of respect, like we're gonna figure out a way to do that and make sure that they're protected. Then I think it's important to change some of our exhibits and some of um, the way that we talk about our relationship with native people. So then also making sure that those same folks that we're working with to get those collections returned also have a say in the stories that we're telling. So helping design some of the exhibits that we may wanna produce at the Illinois State Museum or at places like Dixon Mounds or Cahokia Mounds. We wanna make sure that their voices are being heard, that their knowledge is being respected and that we're making sure that they're included in whatever part of the, the story that defines all of us as, as Illinois people, but especially those those first folks who who really, you know, have ownership and and claim to this land. Why why is it important to to really pull native peoples into this process? Has has it been largely a policy of exclusion to this point, whether intentional or not? And why is it important to change that? Yeah. 100%. So um, I think that there's really no argument here. We, we know that this land was founded on um, colonization and genocide. You know, the way that America is now defined, it was founded on colonization and genocide. Land had to be taken from Native people. The way that we identify as Indigenous people is that we have a relationship with this land. So for many of us as Native people, our languages are defined by this land, meaning um, our place names can be seen um, in our languages. Uh, they define our locations. They define our relationship with plants and animals. I mean, it's just, it's very different from English. It's, it's cool. I love it. I'm learning my Native language. And this is something that we see um, even in, in our language, uh, but it defines everything about us. So having, um, having that connection to the land severed was really important um, for colonization purposes. Now, think about it today. We don't have any federally recognized tribes that um, have land here in Illinois that was purposeful, you know, it was remove the Indians in order to be able to take the land for other 
or for access to its resources in order to um, allow for other people to come in and to also have claim to this land. That we know that. So um, figuring out ways to um, bring that relationship back and make sure that native people have a say in like how this land is taken care of means that we're respecting their culture, we're respecting their, their heritage and we're respecting their knowledge. Um, we have stories as native people about how to take care of this land, how to be in relationship with it. So allowing folks to share that knowledge um, means that we all can live in better relationship with this place that we now all call home. It's just understanding and being respectful of the people that also have, you know, really important relationship and claim to this place and making sure that their voices are included as well. And talking about uh, Dixon Mounds, and you mentioned Cahokia too specifically, those those are two very special sites, uh, burial sites. And what where do you think the state needs to go on those to maybe better tell the stories or better show respect, maybe? One of the best ways that we can bring in some changes to those particular places is to bring in a variety of different tribal perspectives. I've been able to spend time at places like Newark Earthwork Mounds and like Hopewell in Ohio. And one of the things that's so cool about those places is that they've been able to really engage with some of the tribes that uh, would have, you know, been included in that area. So I'm friends with the uh, chairwoman of the Eastern Shawnee tribe, uh, Chief Glenna Wallace. And one of the things that she talks about is that, you know, they can't have any interpretation of the way that Natives participated in these mounds or unless Native people are actually there telling their stories, being involved in it. So, like, I want to be able to help usher in that era where we're bringing in folks to help tell these stories. I'd love to be able to see them able to conduct um, ceremonies or celebrations in these places that celebrates the way that they would have historically participated in in these places, but that also provides education to the greater community to help all of us kind of have a better understanding of what's so special and particularly unique about places such as Dixon or Cahokia Mounds. I think it's a really interesting time to be able to do this work. And rather than seeing it as something that is scary or difficult to understand, I think it's just something new and unique and exciting because we're going to get such a richer uh, version of our history. We're going to get such a better story of how this land can be used and how we can. That was Illinois State Museum Director of Tribal Relations, Heather Miller. She's the first to hold that title. She spoke with Tim Shelley. For our next story, we visit Minnesota. When Isaac Ortman wakes up in his backyard hammock in Duluth, it feels familiar. He slept outside for more than 1,000 consecutive nights in all kinds of weather. He's not doing it for notoriety, to raise money, or even to set records. He's been doing it for fun. Dan Crocker with Minnesota Public Radio brings us that story. It all started back in April 2020. Paint this image, or picture this image I meant to say. 
That's Isaac. He was 11 years old at the time. The coronavirus pandemic had just taken hold. His family was at their cabin, and his dad asked him, do you want to sleep outside while we're here? And I'm like, yeah. So I sleep outside all weekend. It's a long weekend, five-day weekend. I'm like, oh, wait, I could do this for 10 days, and that would beat my record, and that would be awesome. So they got home, and he slept outside in his backyard. It was lots of fun, and I'm like, oh, well, I'll just keep going. But then I also challenged my scout group to see if anybody could sleep outside longer than me. (laughs) Nobody took me up on it, though. But that didn't deter him. He kept going, for no other reason, really, other than he liked it. I love the space that I get from my parents. (laughs) It's just a fun experience. It's like going camping every night. That means over nearly three years, he slept in just about every kind of weather. He says the hot and humid nights are the worst because there's nothing he can do about it. He covers the hammock with a rain fly and bug net. The cold? He's got a system for that. I sleep in a hammock, so I have two underquilts, so I don't compress all the insulation underneath me. But then I'll put on my long underwear, and then sometimes I'll heat up a water bottle full of really warm water, put that in between my legs, that way... The blood, it goes by the warm water, warms up, goes to my feet, keeps everything nice and warm. Then he snuggles inside a 20-degree down sleeping bag and covers that with two zero-degree down quilts. He says this week hasn't even phased him. His coldest night so far was 38 below. He even slept one night shortly after a bear peeked through their back patio window. He just made sure he didn't have any candy wrappers around. That's not to say there haven't been challenges. In December, during a big snowstorm... His mom, Melissa, says he spiked a 102-degree fever. And so normally his hammock is way in our backyard, and we shoveled a spot, put a tent five feet from our back door so he could come in and out as needed. She says for her part, the best part of this experience has been watching her son mature. It's just been really cool to see how he's grown through the years. He's approached a problem, figured out how to solve things on his own or with our support, and made it through. Isaac says he plans to keep going at least through high school. That's another four years, and then maybe beyond. His story has been picked up by the Washington Post. He's been interviewed by NBC News and the BBC. His dad, Andrew, says Isaac hasn't let it get to his head. He says his son is still just a 14-year-old kid with homework to do. I don't see him stopping any time unless it's not fun for him. As soon as it's not fun, um, he knows, we've talked about it, that uh, he can call quits whenever he wants. Nobody's going to judge him. Nobody's going to feel bad. He's already done awesome. One potential stumbling block for Isaac's streak is coming up this summer when he plans to go to a national scouting jamboree in West Virginia. As part of the trip, he'll spend some time in Washington, D.C., so he needs to figure out a place to camp there. Andrew says his dream is for his son to sleep on the White House lawn. Who knows? If Isaac's story keeps spreading, maybe the president will send an invitation. Dan Crocker, NPR News, Duluth. We've got more to come on statewide. Stay with us. And remember, if you miss an episode, you can find it at this station's website. Welcome back to Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. Coming up, Governor J.B. Pritzker outlines new early childhood investments as part of a nearly $50 billion budget proposal. But first, ideas for new development along the St. Louis Riverfront are nothing new. A few proposals have even won tax incentives from city aldermen. But Eric Schmidt reports the biggest challenge for developers is not governmental hurdles, but the Mississippi River itself. 
White water tumbles over the chain of rocks near the northernmost tip of St. Louis. The power of the river is evident here, even though the Mississippi is quite low right now. Seasoned St. Louisans like Mike Clark know what the river can look like when it's much higher during a flood. We've had 46 feet, 42 feet, which means everything you can see, as far as you can see, goes underwater until it hits a bluff or something like that. He motions to a large mound of dirt on the opposite bank that's the site of a proposed marina and entertainment district. Clark is better known as Big Muddy Mike and the founder of Big Muddy Adventures, which guides canoe and other paddling trips on the Mississippi and Missouri rivers around St. Louis. Today, he and a few other guides are taking us out on the Mississippi. Before we can go anywhere, we review river safety and each cinch up a life jacket. Then it's time to carry the canoe down to the river's edge and get paddling upstream. Just north of the I-270 bridge, the land set for development comes into clear view. But if we go over there, uh, when you get right next to the, uh, what amounts to a levee, which is now riverbank, um, you'll get, you'll, it'll give you a sense of the uh, scale. It was too windy to paddle up next to it, but even a half mile away, on the other side of the river, the mound of dirt still towers over the water. But Big Muddy Mike says that may not be enough to protect it in a future flood. Developers of the Lighthouse Point project disagree and plan to outfit the site with streets and utilities this year, before construction of the marina, indoor water park, and trampoline park begins in 2024. Tim Morris, a managing principal of M2 Development Partners, says parts of the project still have to pass muster with the Army Corps of Engineers and environmental agencies. These are agencies that don't really care, you know, about our development. They care about the natural resources and the flow of the river and protecting the assets associated with that. Mark Repking, also with M2 Development Partners, says the property is protected since it was raised high enough that the Federal Emergency Management Agency doesn't list it in a floodplain. It was floodplain to some degree because of its elevation, but it was protected with an existing levee. And it, you know, as the waters over the years went up and down, it never flooded the site except for 1993, which was the historic flood level. But to Colin Wellenkamp, executive director of the Mississippi River Cities and Towns Initiative, that misses the reality of modern riverfront development. Now, whatever you build, whatever you outfit or change, it really needs to be engineered to flood. Putting up a wall around it, putting up a levee around it, is only going to make things more risky for you, and it's also going to make things more risky for your neighbors. He says most of the hundreds of cities and towns that are part of his organization have stopped trying to engineer the river to meet their needs. Wellencamp says instead they're conforming development projects to the dynamics of the Mississippi. So many of my cities have seen new projects wash away or get stuck in the mud because the water's way out there in the channel because it's a drought. Developers of other projects that touch the city's riverfront are taking note. Hank Weber is a principal at Urban Impact Advisors and a senior advisor to the Gateway South Project. 
He says the proposed construction and design innovation district near the Arch is still in its infancy, with construction of the first phase set to begin in June of 2024. Weber says there is a vision for the project to eventually include a river port, and resiliency will need to be at the forefront of those plans. How do we use the river as a commercial asset, as well as a recreational asset, that respects the river, respects climate change, and respects the challenge, which is that it floods. Weber says any responsible developer or public agency that approves development has to recognize this reality, even if it's not trivial to accommodate for. On the Mississippi River, I'm Eric Schmidt. For now, McDonough County in western Illinois won't consider a monetary offer from a company that wants to build a carbon dioxide pipeline through that region. Rich Egger tells us more. Navigator Heartland Greenway offered the county $600,000 a year for 30 years in exchange for cooperation on the pipeline. County leaders received the proposal in late January, about four months after the county board approved a two-year moratorium on the construction of pipelines. The board's Law and Legal Committee this week agreed to discuss the proposal but not vote on it. Chairperson Joe Erlinson voted in favor of the moratorium and says he's not about to reverse his vote simply because money was offered. I was against the project and my vote last fall. Really nothing's changed other than money being offered now. Erlinson says the committee agreed to publicly discuss the offer in the interest of transparency. He also says the offer could come up for a vote at a future meeting. A standing room only crowd attended the meeting. Union laborers spoke in favor of the project and the jobs it would bring during construction. Others, such as Terry Frisbee, raised concerns. She says farmers have an expression called ramming. It's when a little too much energy and pressure is put into the work you're doing, and you end up driving the tractor a little too hard or pushing grain through an auger a little too fast. As a result, someone could get hurt, something could get broken, or you might overlook something important. And that's how we think about the pipeline process to date, is that we feel that Navigator is, is trying to ram the project through and not fully go through a fair process. And Frisbee says CO2 pipelines have not been properly vetted for safety by the state and federal governments. She says that needs to be done before anything else can happen regarding the project. Rich Egger reporting. State Senator Doris Turner's pushing for body cameras for emergency medical service workers two months after the death of a Springfield man. Earl Moore Jr. suffocated after being strapped to a gurney face down by two EMS workers. Those workers now face first-degree murder charges. Turner says there were a lot of conflicting statements following Moore's death. If it were not for the body cameras that the uh, police had on when they responded to the inc- to the incident, we would have never known what actually happened. 
Turner's bill would require EMS workers to wear a body camera while responding to calls and for their service vehicles to be equipped with a dashboard camera. Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker has outlined a nearly $50 billion spending plan for the fiscal year that begins in July. It's bolstered by a combination of one-time federal revenue that helped retire stubborn debt, better-than-expected tax receipts, and cash from new funding sources. The governor wants to spend on ideas he says are now financially feasible. Alex Degman takes a look at the proposals and what others are saying about them. Governor Pritzker sounded a positive tone. He says things are going great. The state of our state is stronger than it has been in decades, and we're getting stronger every day. The governor's Office of Management and Budget estimates the state will earn $49.9 billion over the next fiscal year from a combination of tax receipts, investment interest, fees, and more. That's roughly $1.5 billion less than the state's taking in this year, in part because the office expects at least a mild recession. And while revenue estimates for the current fiscal year have been revised upward more than once, budgeteers are not planning for that next year. Still, the governor is outlining new spending priorities in his $49.6 billion budget because he says the state has paid off much of its longstanding debt. As of fiscal year 2023, all of our state's short-term and medium-term liabilities will have been eliminated. All of it. Pritzker is referring to things like the long-standing bill backlog, unemployment insurance trust fund debt accrued during the COVID-19 pandemic, and delayed provider payments. State pensions are considered long-term liabilities and are not included in that debt payoff, although the governor's office notes they're slowly becoming healthier. Pritzker's key announcement was that he wants to spend $250 million next year to launch Smart Start Illinois, offering free preschool to three- and four-year-olds. Smart Start Pre-K will provide new center-based and school-based classrooms, improve quality across the board, attract new professionals to the field, and ensure that we reach our most vulnerable. In the first year alone, 5,000 more seats will be available for children across the state. But Pritzker is quick to point out you need staff, too, if you plan to add that many seats. Smart Start would expand a program to help people start early childhood education careers, noting the current teacher shortage. It would double the amount of money allocated to build new facilities in areas where there's limited access to preschool. And money could also be used to fix existing buildings and to expand early intervention services for children and their families before they get to pre-K. Pritzker also wants a path for low-to-middle-income students to get free community college if they apply for a grant from the Monetary Award Program, otherwise known as a MAP grant. With a $100 million increase in MAP, we can make history. Together with Pell Grants, virtually everyone at or below median income in Illinois can go to community college tuition-free. That means higher wages and better jobs in healthcare and IT, construction management, manufacturing, accounting, and much, much more. Pritzker also highlighted public safety and mental health efforts, noting there's money to continue hiring more Illinois State Police troopers and millions for a first-of-its-kind online resource portal for families seeking behavioral health care. The governor's Office of Management and Budget predicts personal income tax receipts will grow next year by a little more than 3% but corporate taxes will decline, remain roughly flat, and sales taxes will stay flat or increase slightly. But it's just one budget estimate out of several that are used throughout negotiations. Both the House and Senate Republicans will be out with their own estimates, and House Minority Leader Tony McCombie questioned why new programs are being considered when revenue projections for next year are down by nearly $1.5 billion. It's not that she's against the program's idea, she said. 
But spending like this without structural reforms won't work. We want programs that are going to help our most vulnerable as well. Our kids, our families, our, our disabled, our, our mental health issues that we have here in Illinois. However, there is no sustainable funding source for this. Senate Minority Leader John Curran, in a brief statement to reporters, said the governor's spending plan is more of the same. He pointed to Democratic Comptroller Susanna Mendoza's concerns about new programs that require permanent funding. We must heed the warning of the Comptroller especially at a time we're likely headed towards a recession. We must stop the majority party from spending us into a tax increase. Though earlier this week, Governor Pritzker noted that Mendoza is in favor of some new spending, like increases to MAP grants. The Democratic caucuses in the House and Senate will come up with their own plans, too, over the coming weeks and months. Senate Majority Leader Kimberly Lightford said Pritzker sounded the right tone. He acknowledged poverty and the impacts that it has on everyone's life. He mentioned homelessness. He talked about behavioral health and mental health challenges. All of those things that we are afraid to address that have been stigmas, uh, mainly in the black community. And I applaud his efforts for that. And I believe that this is an excellent start in those spaces. In a statement, House Speaker Emmanuel Chris Welch called the state's financial progress remarkable and called the governor's outline a good starting point for legislative negotiations. Democratic State Representative Jahan Gordon Booth, the House Democrats' chief budget negotiator, agreed and said the real work is about to start. At the start of next week, we'll begin hearing um, from different agencies, Illinois Department of Labor, GOMB, COGFA, and others, because we will begin the process of um, deciding upon a revenue number. While Pritzker was focused mainly on his spending plan, there were national issues he wanted to continue addressing. He tried to tie his spending priorities to ongoing national conversations about critical race theory, book bans, and LGBTQ education, among other things. He's regularly inserted himself into these conversations, which led to chatter that he would run for president next year. And there was no presidential talk this time. But Pritzker did say he's pushing for some of these new initiatives in part because Illinois is a beacon in the Midwest for these progressive values. I've laid out a budget agenda that does everything possible to invest in the education of our children. Yet it's all meaningless if we become a nation that bans books from school libraries about racism suffered by Roberto Clemente and Hank Aaron and tells kids that they can't talk about being gay. Lawmakers have until the end of the day, May 31st, to pass a budget before it requires a three-fifths vote instead of a simple majority. Democrats have more than a three-fifths majority in both chambers, but Republicans have said emphatically that they want to be included. They'll spend much of the next three months trying to figure it out. The new fiscal year starts July 1st. I'm Alex Degman. We're out of time for this week's Statewide. Thanks for being along and join us next time. We'll be back with more reports and conversations from in and around Illinois. You can find our episodes at the station's website and our weekly podcast can be accessed through the NPR One app. I'm Sean Crawford. Statewide is a production of NPR Illinois with help from other Illinois Public Radio stations.